Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. With me is Dave Cohen. Hello. And our producer Katie Story. Hello. And our wonderful guest is Andrew Ellard. I'm here. I have not been molested. Okay. That is a reference to our previous podcast. Thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, <laughs> I'm here completely within my own will. He's, he's, he's not an, he, but we have sat here in awkward silence for the last two weeks since the last one. And so go and listen to the last podcast if you've not heard that first, in which we talked to Andrew about uh, chewing gum and also his latest blaps, which hopefully you've been enjoying on the Channel 4 website. And the lovely YouTube, which actually works on phones and tablets. Oh, great. Even yeah. better. So we have various questions for um, Andrew to answer, just general uh, questions for based on his extensive sitcom writing and editing experience. Every time I say I don't know to one of these questions, <laughs> it's going to look worse because of the build-up you give it. So we uh, we tweeted Ask Andrew questions. He on Twitter, by the way, is um, Ellard Ent. Elardent. Elardent. It doesn't work. It's no. supposed to be ardent, but with Elard. Somebody we, suggested it years ago, and it doesn't we work. We talked about it a good idea right. at the time, and you just thought, this social media thing's not going to yeah. catch on. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And now you're yeah. stuck with it. I want to know who's got at Elard. That was my big concern. Oh, was, oh. That's infuriating. Anyway. But, um, but anyway, well, I'm going to get my question in first. And one of the things that we... We have this thing called the first ten pages, where people send us the first ten pages, and we regularly acknowledge that people make the same mistake, which is... Story doesn't yeah. start at all, if ever. You may have your own views on on what your experience are that, but I was going to ask you also, what ex what mistakes do experienced sitcom writers make? Because you have edited scripts oh, of, yeah. of extremely experienced sitcom writers. What sort of mistakes are they getting into? I wouldn't so much say mistakes, but you watch things unravel in the third act on the first pass because they know that they want all these ideas in this one script in this one story. But because it's a first pass and because I'm a script editor who's available to them already, they, they can comfortably send me that first version, okay. knowing that they're not going to be attacked for not getting mm -hmm. that third act. Because what they really want is some perspectives on how to get that third act worth, and that's part of the... So it's not really a mistake, because okay. it's not really a submitted script yet. Right, right. Graham said a very smart thing recently, though, which... This we, is Graham Linehan, Graham by the way. Graham yes. by the way. Yeah. Um, and we found this on Count Arthur, this series, very, very much, which is... You write the whole episode through, you get to the end, you find the finale you want to do, and you realise you haven't set it up at all, so you only find the first scene once you've written all the way to the end of the script. Yeah. And I'm finding that, in my own stuff, more and more true all the time, that actually the bigger and better and more interesting your finale is, the more you probably didn't do it right in the first place when you f did the first pass, but you had to write that draft to get to that funny, brilliant third act. Can, can I... Um also, butting mm. with a question ahead of others because it's sort of following from that. I know, and I know from what I've read of what Graham says, how he does tend to write the set. He he comes up with the set pieces first. So, uh, in terms of writing, are you kind of do you find that you're looking for the big finale before you're looking for other things? Oh yeah, I mean you look for you look for structure first because that's the first thing. You, you know, there's no point tweaking dialogue until you've um, mm. tweaking individual lines and little bits and pieces. I've just remembered, sorry, I've just remembered there's another thing that everybody does, uh, mistake that everybody does, which is the generic placeholder characters, that a cameraman is always a man, and that a, a director is usually a man, and when the, you know that you go to the least interesting version of something, just because you need a, a stock character, a person at a bus stop, uh, blah blah blah. So actually in the first passes, what you see is a lot of sort of placeholder people, 
uh, where nobody thinks about any kind of diversity or anything, which mm. is a, a, a problem anyway. But also just, wouldn't it be way more interesting if this person was anything other than the most generic version? Now, of course, you don't want to just steal the scene out and yeah, distract from the point. There's yeah. a balance to be done. If you make them a funny character when their job was to be a functional character. Yeah. But there's a balance to be struck there. That's interesting. Um, no, that's that's very useful, yeah. and I, I'm sure I do that. Going back to the, the so the big set piece. Big, big set, set pieces. Yeah. I mean, we brought up Red Dwarf last week, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we two did. weeks ago when I was still dressed, we brought up <laughs> we brought up the the Red you Dwarf said your thing. Your cold would get better. <laughs> two weeks and it's still gone. It's lingering, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I might be dead by the next one. <laughs> um, and I think that was true that the the sketch comedy thing that informs Red Dwarf still informs Red Dwarf. Doug and Rob t- together, and subsequently Doug on his own, are really in love with set pieces. Are really in love with a finessed single standalone thing. Not that it won't be affected by what's come before or affect what's gone afterwards, but that you just whack this brilliant piece of crafted thing for two minutes and let it run and roll. And sometimes my job is to find the way to glue five of those together, or rather help the writer find a way to glue mm. all of those together. Um, where the glue is invisible. Where the glue is invisible. And the folds are all hidden. Absolutely. Yeah. You want it to look like a sphere, yes, when actually yeah. it's a ball of paper that's been... Yeah. It's, it's, it's been scrumpled up yeah, many, many yeah. times. Yeah. If you're, you're given these five set pieces from mm. Graham, let's say, and, uh, and he says, you know, that's number one, that's two. And you look at number three and you say, actually... Do you think number three is maybe the biggest? That's yeah, yeah. Really well, that kind of that kind of happened with um, the role playing game episode of the IT crowd. Uh, there's an episode where the guys get involved with a with a, a role playing game in their basement. That two guys who really shouldn't be there, businessmen who didn't want to be involved, are in there, and they turned up and they didn't want to be involved. And the scene played out funny for a couple of minutes, but that was kind of the joke you were expecting to have happen. Mm, yeah. And then the script moved on to other things, and it turned into we went, we went off on a hen night that Jen was part of, that she invited the business businessman to, and all of that. And the more we looked at that that middle part, the more you realised, oh my god, this is this is most of the show right here. What we haven't done is made everything feed into the role playing game. Wouldn't it be way more interesting if these guys thought it was stupid and were won over? Yeah. Wouldn't it be interesting if we took Roy's problem, which that week was he couldn't get over a girlfriend, and said that over the course of the game, Moss used the characters, the fiction of role playing, to help him get over his ex. So she said a final goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and what what was originally kind of you know four or five minutes in the middle of a much bigger episode be- expanded to become so much of what that episode was about and did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of in weird ways. It's one of my proudest bits of script editing because it did just everything. That middle section just expanded and took in everything, and it became really emotionally involved. The audiences were were like almost in tears. <laughs> it was really yeah. sweet to watch it. With yeah. the it's amazing light. how long it can take um, before that one idea unlocks that whole mm-hmm. episode, mm-hmm. and almost once you have had that one idea and it's unlocked it, and you've you've now got the script and you start filming it or whatever, and, and it, it's working. You do look back on your, the, you do look back on one month ago, thinking, "Wow, this was awful a month ago. <laughs> Why did we think that would be funny? What weren't we total idiots?" <laughs> you know, or going back to, I wrote that first scene of this show, which seemed extremely funny, and it's yeah. it's stupid and pointless, aren't I? You know, but actually, hmm. it's just it's amazing how you you're always trying to do your best perfect script, and it takes often usually quite a yeah. long time. Hmm. 
and then you're sort of mystified as to why you thought the previous incarnation could have worked. <laughs> and then you eventually end up with something that you're happy with. The only time, and then it actually then shows you sometimes that things have gone too far when you think the previous version was fine and now we're just changing it for the sake of it. I don't quite know why we're doing this, but that's, that's yeah. a frustration for another day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think one of the hardest things as a new writer is just, is just to get used to the idea that it's okay to throw stuff out. Yeah. Because you do feel like you slaved over it. You do feel like you put a lot of time into it. And that nobody cares. No. Nobody cares when it actually goes to the floor. Nobody, nobody cares how many hours you spend. The gag, you, it took you... It's why I get quite frustrated with, amongst many things I get frustrated with, with criticisms of, you know, they wrote that script in a week. Some of the best things you've ever seen were only come up with a week before you saw them. Yeah. There's no way of knowing which things, of course, work and repetition and going over it again will, will help, help to craft a thing. But sometimes inspiration just lands right yeah. and a good episode can come out of... A bad episode can take months to make, and a good episode can happen just like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. and vice versa. But also, the good only the good episode that is written in a week only happens because the characters are there, the yeah, ideas are there. Absolutely true. You're already sort of tuned in yeah. to what works and what doesn't. Well, and, and finding also, the world, and you get, and you get lucky. Yeah. You know, yeah. And also, the stuff that you throw away, it's not thrown away forever. No, nope. it's, uh, it's in a no, it's in a big old bottom drawer. Absolutely, it's in the it's trunk. All the the folder. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, this is right. I've, I've got various files called, you know, offcuts and that sort of stuff, yeah. and, get, yeah. and they come from Spark. Not to use. That also, um, that also helps you cut stuff. If yeah, you put yeah. it into another document and say it's not gone, yeah. it's just it's just temporarily postponed and yeah. saved for later. You'll never see it again. It's a but, it's a compliment that um, David Mitchell and Rob Webb play of Sam and Jesse is that they consistently cut funny stuff because it's not useful, mm. and that's why Peep Show. Is, su- is such a good show is so well respected is because they come up with good ideas they come up with funny stuff you know I think it's David I think you said stuff that if we come up with them we would cling on to them for dear yeah, life because yeah. they're getting laughs as it were yeah, but exactly. they just if it's not useful cut it stick it in a drawer the number of so- number of times I've and I've done it myself but I've certainly seen other people you know try to ring fence one joke and then yeah. force entire scenes to work yeah, towards yes. them and out and you, it's not worth it. It's never worth it. And yet we, we all do it. And yet we all do it. Which is interesting, again, going back to our talk two weeks ago about the uh, uh, about uh, writer-performers. And, uh, and having having worked as a writer-performer and performer and as just as a writer, um, I, am, I am very aware of the performer part of me that wants to cling on to that joke because I know, because I've done that You've joke. You've watched and it I've play. And I've seen audiences yeah. laugh at it. How can you possibly tell me not to do it? And you know, you're nine out times out of ten, you're right. Not you personally, the situation. No, me personally, I am nine out yeah. of ten times <laughs> yeah. right. That's yeah. accurate. Okay. okay, well let's. I know see. it's bad, isn't it? <laughs> okay, with so. that kind of hit rate, how am I still working? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right. Is the next question then going to be the one that's wrong? We'll oh. see. This is from Ben Moore, and the question is: Can you ask at Elardent, Elardent, however it's pronounced, how often he thinks there is a family dynamic in non-family sitcoms? I mean, it seems to. I was thinking about this the other day with actually with outsiders in mind. If you've watched Outsiders, yeah. there is definitely a thing of mm. who's the mum. There are some that? sensible mum and dad kind of things yeah. going on, and there are some. There's a a, a, a reckless layabout uncle on the sofa. Mm. It's not. It wasn't built that way. I didn't sit there and go, "Oh, I need to make sure there's a family dynamic." Mm. But in and again, 
in the, the archetypes coming past us and the, the brilliant performers auditioning for it or coming to talk about it and who we plucked off and who we put together, I guess instinctually you go, no, no, yeah. that's the kind of power dynamics you need. You need somebody who's going to be reckless and chaotic and you need somebody who's going to be firm and difficult. And Which is why it's such a great thing in, in Abfab that the, the, the mother is oh, actually yeah. the daughter yeah. and the daughter is the mother. And that, that's... Uh, well, any, I mean, any, yeah. any workplace sitcom, any, I mean, Drop the Dead Donkey, it is a, it's a, it's a useless dad and a very strict mum yeah. sat in the middle of a show of, of mostly awful, awful children. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't, I don't know if that's just because... You know how like you, you see faces in clouds because we're programmed to see faces? Yeah, yeah. Whether we see family dynamics in everything because we're used to what they look like, or whether it's actually a thing of, no, you kind of need the, need them creatively for something to function. Interesting what you just said about Drop the Dead Donkey, because you just actually described the, the cast of Outnumbered. Oh, you? right. In the same way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Same, well, useless dad, a very strict mum, and <laughs> wild children around. That, that's, no, that's, that's no, because one of them's definitely the same, Damien. That's yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. So um, I do find sometimes if I'm coming up with a new sitcom and I'm kind of playing around with the characters, I, it does help. I think to sort of look at these five people and say, oh, that's the that's the crazy kid, that's the uh, that, that, that's the um, dull dad or whatever, and it does help. Um, uh, I mention this partly because this goes on to another question that's not on here, but this is uh, something I had to deal with, a sitcom that I just came up with as uh, being rejected, and uh, we've just finally... God, is it Tuesday again already? <laughs> so, on a very cheery note, that they're uh, dealing with rejection, so... Uh, oh, yeah. I've been through, uh, I've been through um, denial and anger and blame, um, I'm, I'm, I'm probably through still self-harm? Is uh, that yeah. it? I'm, I'm just on bitter still. Okay. Right. Okay, yeah. Oh. So, but... but how do you? I mean, do you, do, you, do, do you? How often do you get rejected versus sort of ignored and forgotten? That's yeah. one. Of, that's one of the things that de- that I find almost more upsetting is the way a, a, a script, a pitch, uh, a whatever, will sort of just fade away rather than stop. Yeah. Where where you had hope and then you just realise you had a bit less hope today than you had yesterday, and the the emails don't get replied to as quickly, and you know the. And then weeks later, you you realise you'd forgotten to hope. Yeah. And then you go, where were we with that? And then you go, oh. Oh, that's what that meant. Right. <laughs> okay. okay. But also, I, I mean, I do, I've again, for new writers, and I've said this before, so I'm boring the arse out of anyone who's listened to me on any other podcast than this one, probably. But it's you have to get resilient in order to get used to submitting stuff in the first place. You have to build a suit of armour because you're going to get rejected. You are going to get told, sorry, this isn't for us. You're going to get the brush off. You're going to get the the horrible form letters. You're going to get all the versions of no, although not enough versions that are just no. So you go through all of this, but you get tougher. You get tougher by doing it. You get you develop a hide. You develop your armor, and then you finally get through the door. And someone says, "Let's develop something. Let's move this on a step." And they start giving you notes, and the notes don't go through because you're wearing a suit of armor now, and the notes will just bounce off. Right. It the the trick to making your armor porous it feels to me is one of the hardest things and one of the things you have to learn is having developed the resilience and the confidence of no my writing is good it's everyone else who is wrong yeah well now you're in a room with someone who agrees with you your writing is quite good and that but they're about to tell you the 50 ways your thing doesn't work yet and somehow you have to say oh yeah good point mm. as opposed to oh, I was really confident about it because I have to be yeah, yeah. Le- learning that getting used to that so I, d- I mean I do think just getting used to feedback 
is really tough. I mean, I. I'm loath to say go and pay for notes all the time because because you know you know you it should be a free it should be a free entry into the industry you shouldn't have to pay money um, to get your scripts but you do need to start showing them to people you do need to to get opinions early enough that you're used to getting opinions yeah. and from people who are oh God please find a friend with Asperger's mm. you know what I mean someone who's going to be just brutally straightforwardly honest not mm. to hurt you but just because you need to hear this stuff yeah, yeah, because yeah, you yeah. have to you have to develop that kind of immunity mm-hmm. yeah. um, and also I think uh, yeah it is hard to get good notes because mm. also now compared to when I was starting out nearly 20 years ago so many people are writing scripts mm. now 20 years ago writing wasn't a thing and now it is and now there's the internet and podcast about sitcom writing, um, hosted by chances, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but um, but now there is so much competition, they can't give give you much feedback. Uh, so it, it is really hard. So anyone who you can, any, any half contact you've got with someone other than your mum, yeah. unless your mum is head of comedy yeah. for a commissioning channel or runs a production company, it is worth getting those notes and they may be bad notes but getting used to failure or getting used to notes because failure is the norm yes success is yeah. the way is the imposter yeah mm. so the sooner you get used to that I'm fail afraid. better as samuel beckett failure yeah yeah well the, the other one that the other failure comment which i think we we're talking about earlier before is when you what you want to do is, is that balance between sticking to your original idea and receiving feedback so that the show that you eventually offer to someone who can make it happen is the show that you want to do. Yeah. So if they don't want it, you failed on your own terms rather than failed offering a show that you never even liked. Absolutely. So uh, I think it is so. there are so many sort of uh, gates to navigate your way through, unfortunately, but um, you've got to get used to it. Yeah. Sorry. Tough okay. gig. Right, we've got uh, more. We'll, we'll crack on through the questions. Uh, we've got a question from Andy Riley, who we've actually had on this uh, show, of course. So, uh, what am I going to be uh, able to tell him? Well, you know, a- Emmy Award winning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can I borrow writer? your Emmy? Is, is all I've got for this. Well, he wants to know from you, and he's probably got a specific reason he wants to know how do you select the right B or C plot to go with an A plot? Oh, yeah. Well, that's. I mean, I, I'm brutally pra- pragmatic about things in the first instance. So. Much as romantically, what I quite like is thematic. If you can, if you can find a thing where actually it's three different versions of how do I reject something or someone? Mm-hmm. I'm going to reject my job. I'm going to reject my boyfriend. If you find that they they belong together thematically, that can be quite nice. Although the risk of that is that they're all then hitting the same beats at the same time during the course of the episode. And it feels like you're watching one plot instead of three. And the whole point of having subplots was that you were going off to do something that was tonally, you know, going to give you something other than the main plot was giving you. So you've just talked yourself out of so that. So I've just talked myself no. out of that one. No. Nonetheless, <laughs> sometimes that can be good. No, it can. And it's um, very common in America. I mean, again, going back, I think on the last podcast, two weeks ago now, you put your clothes back on. Something <laughs> like, um, the, uh, the Goldbergs uh, often have the same theme in the different plots. Right. Um, Scrubs used to do it quite a lot yes. as well. Where they would sort of, you know, the, a narrative voice sometimes help with that. If you've got a narrator, mm-hmm. they sometimes can draw these things together in a way that's a bit harder for you to do without one. But in something like Frasier, for instance, they, um, there, there, there is always a, there's always like a cliche that that, that tells you the whole episode, what the whole episode's about. Right. It's like you know, sort of. Uh, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your relatives. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, they, then you'll see a kind of how that 
sort of thing broadly plays out in yeah. all the I mean, how it's true and how it's not true. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. get quite like I say, you could. It's it's reasonable to be stupidly pragmatic about these things. Number one, when your big box of ideas, if you've got the whiteboard with the twenty interesting things that you know you want to talk about, and you realise that actually. One of them's never going to be an A plot. It's yeah. too slight. It hasn't. Yeah, yeah. It won't branch off enough. But it'll be a really good running joke with pretensions. Well, that's your C plot right there. Um, time is another thing. If you've got a if you've got a main episode where the A story is starts with breakfast and ends with going to bed, mm. it takes place over one day. Where you already know that any of your plots, that B plots and C plots that require more than one day to execute require you to go back to work and hassle the boss five times on the trot or something well that doesn't fit in Mm. um so it tends to be it's 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 so bland but it it is it is just that ruthless pragmatism first Mm. um and then once hopefully once you've found something that fits the time frame of the story you're trying to tell and has the characters available because there's no point a B story that puts the character through the worst possible day of their life if they're supposed to be really happy for a plot reason in the A story but then once you've found character availability and the right days and schedules for everything that fit together and maybe if you found some thematic link then so much the better hopefully they'll start talking to each other because it's not that the A plot was there and the B plot was there and you had to glue them together it's that you started with two ideas that are now going to run parallel. So the the hope is that you suddenly realise, oh my god, the the guy that she kicked into the pool in the A story can get out of the pool during the B story mm. and terrify the character who's really ner- really nervous. Mm. Starting to see where the overlaps are, starting to see where the joins are, where the little remnants and loose ends and stuff. Mm. Um, that's how you make them, I think, feel like they belong together. Is that yeah. they take place in. A, a space as opposed the worst thing is when you can, can literally divorce them completely you could edit them out of the episodes yeah. and run them as separate you know as a 10 minute story and a 6 minute story and a 3 minute story and mm-hmm. I think also the, uh, the, the other thing that we've, we've been talking about a lot is how things change a lot in the script the, sometimes you think I mean Andy's question um, about how do you select the right B or C plots to go with the A plot implies that there is a right one yeah, yeah. and the problem is you, you don't know which is the right one and there isn't a right one if we have this ideal that there a version of a, a platonic ideal of any script in our head and all we're trying to do as writers is discover that platonic ideal I think that is the path to destruction which is obviously why Andy Riley is a profoundly unsuccessful <laughs> writer well, exactly. yeah. <laughs> and yeah. has to get advice from yeah. comedy podcasts. Yeah. Bless you, Andy Riley. Yes. Okay. But I do think that you you just have to suck it and see. Really, you do just talking of uh, you can put another locket in now if you are still. Thinking yeah, I will do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I, I, I was going to say. Well, it's um, Modern Family is always is a is a great show to look at. That that has. Uh, a B C plots that are kind of uh, it's a kind of three A plots really isn't it I suppose and and there's there's always serious integration efforts going on the whole time aren't there? The more you look at a script, the more you see things in it that you hadn't noticed were there. So of course, if you apply to that to a writer's room, where a half a dozen or a dozen people are looking at the A B and C plots and realizing. Hey, we put Luke in a mask in that one. Well, he could get that from the B plot, and he could actually turn up in the next scene of the C plot and terrify somebody. Yeah. It's just that thing of mm. seeing more opportunities and becoming aware. Because your first your first push at a story is always quite linear. It's you know where you have to get with each one, and the execution of that can be quite sort of not bland, not generic, but it, it has a certain pragmatic quality where you just feel the things being executed correctly. 
Well, now you get to float. Now you get to drift. If you've got all those points put in properly, if you've got all the foundations built or the bottom of the bridge or whatever metaphor you want to bloody use, you can now start getting interesting with the curly cues. You can now get design curious and mm-hmm. start reaching for the weird and interesting stuff. And, right. and, and sometimes that doesn't actually turn up till you start writing it. And sometimes, but I think the idea of what you were just saying there is sometimes you can rush to a script maybe a bit too soon. Once you know, oh, this A, B, and C, yeah, they sort of fit together. Let's, let, you know, let's let's plot it out. Okay, great. A story, this B story, that whack them together. Off we go. I think if you just take a moment just there to work out how can we de- marry these things together nicely I know that I'm guilty of often just rushing to scripts right. so that then I've got a script and then I can start fiddling around with it but actually a bit of extra time I mean I think that's it's hugely dependent on what kind of writer you are that's and true figuring out what kind of writer yeah. you are is a huge part of the process as yeah. well um, I love when, when, again, when Graham Linehan sends like the 20 page version of a, of a Count Arthur, it's way too short. It isn't the script yet. What it is, is the, the building blocks of the idea. And it's, and it's desperately exciting, but you know, scenes that are going to be four minutes long in front of the audience are, are three quarters of a page, because at the moment it's just getting the beats down. Yeah, right. And it means you interrogate it and go and rewrite it, and it doesn't feel like you've slaved over every line yeah. yet, so it's easier to, to chuck it and move on. Yeah. Um, so yes, you can start too early, or you can start too late. Yeah, or yeah but knowing yourself, knowing knowing yourself. Is, is very helpful. Mm. I, that, that, that's a, that feels like a whole other podcast isn't it what writer are you what kind of writer are you lazy lazy the answer is lazy <laughs> yeah I mean, any writer who says they're not you're going to be a bit yeah. worried about yeah. Yeah. yeah no I don't I, I, I sort of wonder I feel like I'm a different writer every time I'm everything that I'm, I do I sort of think uh, oh, I'm that guy here. Oh, actually, but no, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, I, you know, I'm I'm the troublemaker in this. I'm the one who throws the the fireworks in at this point, and you know, and at other times I'm the one who sits there. Oh, come on, everybody! But I think that's. But I think I know what you mean. But I think that's okay. I think it's either a book about. It's either I listen to Michael Frame or David Lodge. I can't remember which, but you can understand why I might confuse the two authors who also do screenplays and other bits and pieces and plays and things mm. but I th- well, one of them says I think it's Michael Frame um, he says that once I've written a book or a novel I've worked out how to write that novel I now don't know how to write the <coughs> next novel right. which might be about something completely different might require completely different research and plotting or right. it might be a play yeah. or it might be a translation yeah, yeah. Yeah. so I think sometimes you might be hostage to the kind of writer that you are, and actually, every project is very different. So, yeah, and um, so you're you're not having a model model. I think is very good, Dave. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> oh, I feel better now. Great. <laughs> What's okay. Michael Frame? Right. Okay. Uh, we'll move on to. Oh, we've got two more questions. That's uh, penultimate question from Laurie Havelock or Havelock. I'm not sure. Um, what do you think is yet to make a compelling setting for a sitcom, and why? Please give me an idea for a sitcom. That's what that sounds like. You know what? I saw that go past on Twitter, and the first thing that hit me, which may or may not be fair, was advertising. Um, Because, well, there was the persuasionists, but also um, Jack Doherty and Maureen Hunter did. The creatives. The creatives. God, they even have similar titles. Mm. And there was another one uh, way back with... uh, Fiddler's Three? No, not Fiddler's Three. uh, Wrote it about... uh, With uh, Leslie Ash 
something Apple. I've got a feeling there is also a, a more recent Radio 4 sitcom also set in advertising. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Um, but as in, a, a, you're, you're talking about a successful sitcom set in advertising. I'm talking, I'm, I'm, the question is, what has yet to be a successful? Is that yeah. right? Uh, oh yes, yes. So what, what do you think? Of, well, you're taking these yeah. questions very literally. And I think, oh, well, I think you're right to, to do so. Am I, yeah. Where's Twitter? Am I not no, supposed no. to take everything yeah. literally at face value? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I see what you mean. <laughs> but you're right, it doesn't make sense. But I wonder, I mean, AdFab is going to break this rule. The problem with advertising is it's already ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas, but somehow, maybe because she's a comic genius, Jennifer Saunders worked out a way of making a show well, about fashion. Everything. But it's not, it's about relationships. Everything about, about AbFab works because of, of Safi sat at the kitchen table. It all works because she says, this is the real world, yeah. and then this is ridiculous. It's, that thing, it's going back to that thing of, of um, knowing what the fictional rules are of your universe. Yeah. AbFab doesn't take place in a mad reality it has a mad set of characters and circumstances mm. because the fashion world is mad, but the real world's right beside it. Yes, with the daughter and her mother. With the daughter well. and her mother, with yeah. with people who drive buses. Like there is, mm. there are actual normals right around the edge of the door. It says this is contained yeah. within this, yeah. and without her, without Safi there, and you say as you say the mum as well. But without them there to say, this is what normal looks like in this fictional universe, like a control group. It's like science. Mm. It is. It's like having a control group there. There is normal, which suddenly makes them funny. Yes. Mm. Whereas if characters walk in and are just loud and colourful and really annoying all the time in mm. that thing, God, is it, this whole show is like it's, this. It's the no, it's where where the do you go for emphasis? Yeah. yeah. You often uh, cite the example of the betting shop, don't you, James? I yes. There's not, been a great city, there's not been a sitcom set in the betting you shop. You know what? There was, in the first pitch document I saw for the Count Arthur sitcom, there was a betting shop. Oh. Um, and then you realise, what the hell do you need a betting shop for? We've already got a cafe where everyone congregates. It would just be a few different characters <laughs> congregating another. Yeah. Well, are they, are they not going to meet each other? What have we segregated them for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You only need the one place. Yeah, and a cafe is a much better place than it. Yeah, than a and I think shop. also the other point, as as we mentioned before, is um, well, how about um, two two blokes sharing a flat? <laughs> I mean, how many <laughs> times has that been can, done? Can that ever work? Can though? that ever work? Can that ever work? work? And you know, the number of times that we read scripts that are two blokes in a flat as well. I mean, there, there are too many of them. But then. Once in a while, a peep show will come along. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You need you need an angle. You need a reason. It's it's got to be better than just because. Well, the thing is, when me and my mate talk, yeah. Oh yeah. God, we're funny. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you should hear us. No, no one no should. One no, no one you should. And your, you and your friend aren't actually because you're laughing. Yeah, that's not. That's there isn't not a room full of people laughing. Yeah. That's you. That means you find your mate funny and he finds you funny, which, which is, is fine. A, which is lovely. Yeah, lucky but you. Keep it within your own your own house. <laughs> Falling in love with your own sense of banter is yeah, a yeah, real yeah. risk and, and, and very common actually and very common and unless you're you know unless you're Aaron Sorkin unless you unless you've somehow managed to plow that into a trick that people like seeing you do yes he sort of turned banter into an art form hasn't yeah. he yeah but, um, but yeah is there one last question yes last question then uh, from the comedy crowd um, well, all of them all of them all yes. of them everybody nice of them, them to get together to, to craft something yes uh I'll try and do this in several voices. <laughs> in early career, uh, you wrote script notes. Do you believe aspiring writers would benefit from doing the same? Oh, in my early career, I was doing it yesterday. <laughs> um, 
Well, you're a silly young man to me. <laughs> Very bright years young I've been at this. Boy. I mean, you need to get, you need to develop analytical skills. There is no question because you have to be able to rewrite your own material, mm. and at some point you need to, be able to do that better than just changing the odd full stop to a comma mm. and going there. I fix the rhythm of the line now. You have to learn how to overhaul, and to do that, you have to know why you're overhauling, and it mm. can't just be someone else said I probably should change this scene, so I did. Um, so from that point of view, getting good at analysis is useful, which means go and look at other scripts and why they don't work. Yeah. One of the, as as you guys will know, one of the the, the Twitter forms of criticism that drive me up the wall is people describing something as bad that's just not for them mm. and learning the difference between those two things is how you get good at deconstruction it's how you get good at analysis if you go and watch a, a sitcom and you find yourself sort of bored in the third act even though a party scene's happening and it's gotten big and colourful have you noticed that the plot stopped happening that they made it big and colourful sort of covering up for the fact that there was no plot in that third act or did you just kind of go, oh, this doesn't bloody work, and turn it off. Mm. You need to get good at that kind of analysis because you're going to have to do it to your own stuff because someone else is going to do it to your own stuff and you don't want to be making changes because someone else said. Mm. So I think it's worth... Firstly, it's just worth reading scripts. Yeah. Although reading bad scripts, I'm not sure will be particularly helpful necessarily. However, the other thing is, on a, on a previous podcast, I think the one that you did for the UK scriptwriters, mm. you mentioned the fact that you wrote notes on some IT crowd episodes. That's right. Which is how you got the job. That's right, yeah. Are the, is that still up? Are those uh, still yeah, up? Those, are, those are still up. If you go to, the website was called Noise to Signal, um, and you'll still find my old IT crowd reviews there and a few other bits and pieces. So it's probably worth watching some IT crowd episodes and reading those. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't look at the AV club very much, but they tend to review stuff Right. quite a lot and I think their reviews tend to be quite good see I don't think thinking critically about scripts yeah. even stuff that's broadcast mm. is, is worth I, doing I think you're way better off looking at shows that are finished than scripts mm. because yeah. I, I and I know I'm it's, it, people don't like me saying this but I, scripts are a compromised document they're not a finished product they were never meant to be shown to anybody they were just supposed to get you through the horrible process of shooting a thing yeah. to the thing if you could just send all of your dialogue and motives into characters' heads, into actors' heads, and have them perform it, rather than put it down on paper for everyone to argue about, you'd maybe be happier. Mm. But for sure, it's not like a novel. It's not like... You need to learn the craft stuff that comes mm. from looking at it. And of course, go and look at you know the script for Aliens, for how you describe a scene when you're going in, and how to do all that stuff. But when it comes to structure and character and personality and all the things that, that matter more than just technique... I see no benefit to looking at the script rather than looking at the finished show. Yeah. Um, and as such, go and watch the show and find out where you're bored. Because they tried, that was them fixing the thing that was wrong with the script. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. guy wrote, a, you know, you wrote an extra four pages of banter and then you get in the edit and you go, so bored by listening to these two yeah. guys hammer on. Yeah. And we just <laughs> cut the whole thing because nothing changed by it. You shouldn't really be assessing the script necessarily for that. Was Nobody involved wanted to bore you for four pages yeah, yeah, in yeah. the middle. But I think I think yeah. Going, so looking at shows, looking at shows that have finished, and just watching something that you think probably you're not even going to enjoy that much, and work out why is this not working or why yeah. am I not enjoying it, thinking critically, I think is really important. But yeah, yeah. people do elevate the script. They really do. And yeah. I think I mean it's, it's worth learning the technical stuff and Absolutely. seeing a well written script, but mm. equally. Yeah, because in fact I read I read uh, several Seinfeld episodes at the time when I was just 
kind of uh, trying to write scripts more and was, was, was starting out really writing sitcom uh, episodes and um, they uh, you, you actually you, you get these huge chunks of Jerry Seinfeld stand up which oh, is yeah. just, you know, just on the page just looks it would just sit totally, there totally you know well, what, was, what is it about Washington but he's machines. done that stuff in a club and it works yeah. you can't yeah, take yeah. it away from it exactly you're right there's oh, a nice callback yes. the script for the Doctor Who episode that Stephen Moffat wrote that literally only Peter Capaldi was in the script for that came out online and you realise it was built to be a t- piece of TV so much that there literally wasn't the script technique available to write the episode the way it needed to be made. Wow. So there's a whole section where you see things that you saw in the first half of the episode replayed back but slightly differently, that things have changed now, that he says 10 years instead of one year, that he says a million years instead of 50 years, and all these increments. And, you, and it, eventually, to get all this stuff to track, all these various callbacks... He had to start logging them as numbers. So this is 8, but this is now 8B because it's different. So this is 8C. This is the, it's not scene 8, da, 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 mm. but it is, it is that. And it got, in, and you can see him fighting against the limits of how screenplay formatting yeah. works. Just to go, but on telly, it looked completely reasonable. Like it's how, it was cut, how telly is cut, which is that you can cut to a thing, show it, and then cut back to the other thing. Yeah. Um, the language of scripts are limited. The format of scripts. Are, if you learn to write by reading scripts, you learn to write things scripts do, rather than things that television or film does. And television and film has got so much more to it than interior blah blah blah. Characters are talking, using the edit, using sound, using all the other tricks. You know. And of course, you see you see what an actor brings to a script oh, as well. Oh, absolutely. Which you, you don't see when you're actually reading the script. So that's that, that is another point. But although that should never be an excuse for saying, oh, well, the actor will make that line funny. I'll tell you what, though, is there's no bad thing to know. If you look at what... I was, what was it? What was I watching? Oh, it was the, the A word, which has uh, Christopher Eccleston in it as a granddad. Mm. Now, if you look at on the page... He was a really generic granddad. Like, he was doing that, mm. or oh, I said something inappropriate again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Was Christopher Eccleston playing yeah. the part? <laughs> and it's a whole other... But actually watching the show... Yeah. God, now, now have a look at... Just look at it. What were his actual lines? Yeah, yeah. And why is him delivering those lines way better than the line actually is? Yeah. That's useful stuff, too. Like, wouldn't you have gone... If you knew that, you might go back and write your grandfather character yeah. better. Yeah. You know, so that Christopher Eccleston would want to play him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, uh, we just draw draw an end to our show. I think. Thank yeah. you very much, Andrew. You, we can. How can we find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at Elardent. Elardent. Fight amongst yourself. And your comedy blap is called. Uh, the comedy blaps are. There's three episodes of them, and it's called Outsiders. You'll find it on YouTube if you do comedy blaps outsiders or any equivalent thereof. Brilliant. I'll be linking to it from AndrewElard.com. AndrewElard.com sure. is your website. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, very good. Very they funny. are very and short and short, and they yes. are mercifully short. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Dave. Thank you, James. And how can we find you. you on Twitter? Uh, at Cohen Dave. At Cohen Dave. I'm at Sitcom Geek, and of course, our producer Katie Story. At Katie Story. At Katie Story. You will be when this is going out in the middle of uh, Edinburgh, probably. Mm, yeah. So will I. And so you're also on in Edinburgh, Dave. I am. Yes, five days only. Uh, hurry, hurry, while well, stocks last. Twenty uh, fourth, twenty eighth of August music was my first love my stand-up poem my 16th Edinburgh show absolutely and if you want to get a feeling of Edinburgh shows 
uh, then read Dave's excellent book, How to Be Averagely Successful at Comedy. Um, have a look at my blog, which is sitcomgeek.blogspot.com. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.